three months after Atkins' death were our, I mean, we went back to sales uh, that we hadn't seen in three, four years. And we were like, holy shit. Uh, and yet we had built our factory to go the opposite direction. So we had three plants and this new plant was built to go the opposite direction. And so that was that was not what we were ready for at all. Zero. So, exactly. Were you at the peak of your momentum? Yeah. Welcome to Beyond the Fail, the podcast where we talk to leaders and entrepreneurs about their biggest business failures. We'll deep dive into how they overcame these setbacks, the lessons they learned from them, all to help you gain valuable insights. Failure is an essential part of the business journey as well as being the key to success. So we're here to show you how to thrive from it. On Beyond the Fail this week, we have a titan of entrepreneurship, Chris Joyce. Chris is the founder and CEO of Gusher, a venture capital platform which has 350 companies in its portfolio. Chris is a born entrepreneur having previously founded 24 companies with his products having reached 11,000 plus stores in 23 countries with a global user base spanning 148 nations. He even started his first business when he was the tender age of six. In this episode, Chris doesn't shy away from the realities of business growth, discussing both triumphs and setbacks, notably sharing the tale of Oso Low Foods, a company that became both his greatest success and his failure. He tells the dramatic story of this company and the impact on the industry following the death of Dr. Atkins. Chris underscores the pivotal role of momentum in business and the resilience required to overcome challenges. This conversation also delves into the personal struggles faced by Chris, where he candidly opens up about the depression he faced following the collapse of Oso Low Foods. He emphasizes the necessity of failure as a catalyst for personal and professional growth encouraging entrepreneurs to embrace setbacks and maintain a positive mindset. In this captivating conversation, he opens up about the impact of influential figures on his career, including his entrepreneurial mother, and about his journey, including making a a significant shift from a money-driven mindset earlier in his career to a focus on meaningful impact. Chris shares his wealth of experience, setting high standards, leading by example, and imparting valuable lessons on navigating the entrepreneurial journey. This episode is not just a conversation about business, it's a testament to the power of resilience, creativity, and the unwavering spirit of entrepreneurship. This is Beyond the Fail with Chris Joyce. Chris, thank you so much for for joining me um, today. It's obviously your morning time over there in the US. I'm super excited to have you on and You've got a vast sort of business experience to talk about today. But Chris, take us back. Where, where did it kind of all start for you? Start, you mean originally, like way, way back you want to go? Well, I'd say where did your entrepreneurial journey start? Okay, well, started when I was six years old. I read a Spider-Man comic book. In the back of the Spider-Man comic book, uh, there was a little classified ad uh, for a business opportunity. Uh, it was called Burpee Seeds. You sent them $5 and you received, you know, packs of watermelon seeds, flower seeds, vegetable seeds, et cetera, a pack of 50 of them. And I got the pack of 50. I sold them door to door on an Air Force base, grossed $50 uh, and netted 45 And I was off to the races. And that was my first really taste of entrepreneurship. That was really it. What really attracted you to that opportunity? 
at six. Hey, I was thinking it was in a Spider-Man book and it said make money or something like that. I go, I could go for making money. Uh, you know, but I honestly don't recall. I remember the experience of selling. Uh, that was from door to door and that taught a hell of a lot. Uh, but really, I don't remember the, the mechanics of the decision per se, you know? Did you have a lot of uh, entrepreneurial adventures when you were in your teens as well? Yeah, teens, definitely. Uh, but really, in the teens, it was more of, of working for other people and learning that I did not like working for other people. And then I was typically better at creating a better process and everything else and seeing uh, the failures and, and what people did and everything else. And I didn't like being part of somebody else's company. I really disliked working for other people. What, why? What, you know, what put you off? Uh, the lack of control. I, I mean, I saw, I, and I saw this from a young age, I saw better ways to do it, uh, ways that it should have done, their, their philosophy of the way they were running their company. I, I took it from a, from a very young age being extremely serious. Uh, and, you know, most people in, in most businesses don't really take their business too seriously. And I take it almost like a religion, so... Was that what it was then? It was a, a lack of, what would you say, attitude, a commitment from, from them that you had and they didn't? I, I, I remember one specific instance. I, I was working at a place called Arby's, you know, the fast food restaurant. And there was this woman that came in on Sundays uh, that I refer to as Lipstick Lady. And, and this woman was older. I mean, she was probably 75, 85. I mean, she was very old. Uh, and she took uh, a cab there, and this was in the middle of Ohio. So to take a cab in the middle of Ohio was not like taking a cab in New York or London or anything else. So she took a cab to this Arby's to go ahead and have, and you can tell this, it was her, her day out. But there was a unique feature about Lipstick Lady, and she would literally have her lipstick all over her face. Now, you know, I understand, you know, teenagers and I understand the managers and whatever that that may be a first glance, you know, you give it and you may laugh, you know, but this to me, it was, you know, this person spending their hard earned money uh, going out on a Sunday afternoon. This is probably her one day out. Uh, and I thought she did, you know, she deserved a level of professionalism and be treated like a human being. And I thought that was extremely important and other people didn't. So let's put it that way. So I went out of my way to make her feel welcome. So I suppose it's in some ways it's sort of an empathy. Sure, absolutely. For the customer, absolutely. Which is a rare trait to have, you know, when you're that young age. Where do you think that came from? Well, I could tell you another deep story, but it has nothing to do with business. Uh, I was a uh, fourth grade, uh, so what was I, six, seven, eight, nine, nine or 10 years old. And I saw a special needs kid uh, surrounded by a bunch of older kids, like 15, 16, and they convinced him to eat an apple core uh, rubbed around in gravel on the pavement. And I did nothing. And I hated myself viciously uh, for doing nothing, standing by and being a coward. And I vowed never, ever to let that happen again. And so that that had a deep impact upon me. It actually led to who I'm married to now, you know, years and years later with children, uh, that common experience did. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Uh, we met, uh, well, I, it was my first involvement with a special needs person. And that really, as I said, made an impact upon me. And later, uh, my future wife sent me an email intro. It was on match.com. And she literally talked about how she volunteered at this special needs camp. And she was the only one I responded to it was right as one of my companies was exploding. I mean, exploding like crazy. Uh, and we worked together ever since. Uh, we were inseparable ever since. Amazing. Yeah, that 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 kind of connection. Uh, and I suppose that 
that's genuine, right? As well. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned about uh, an air force base. Is is what? Where did that come in? Well, I was in, a, in an air force family. Okay. Uh, so my stepfather was air force. So we were, you know, transferred a couple different places uh, from Washington D.C. But then we ended up primarily in Ohio. And how was that growing up, moving around a lot? And well, let me give you an example. My wife has been in one location her entire life, and she literally has thousands of friends. And I moved to all these different Air Force bases and locations. And I think I have one friend from being a childhood. Mm. You know, that's basically it. So they're really opposites. It's an opposite experience. But it teaches you how to penetrate, how to talk, uh, how to not be afraid of really anything because you have to jump right in. And was there any resentment when you were growing up that you didn't, you know, couldn't keep friends or keep in the same location as your friends and you have to keep moving around? Did that cause any tension? No, there was more resent. There was more resentment about being in Ohio. Okay. Uh, if you ever been to Ohio, you would understand that. My my friend and I joke about this to this day. He's like, "You're the one that got out because I did anything to get out of Ohio. I knew my place was not in Ohio." Was that where you eventually settled? Then was did your family settle there instead of moving around? Uh, my my mother eventually divorced my stepfather, and she ended up on the East Coast. But I went straight to college at NYU and got the hell out of there. I did anything I could to get out of Ohio. Okay. Why is it about Ohio? I hated Ohio. Why did you hate Ohio? Yes, I mean, just think of the worst place in, in, in England that you would just be isolated and feel like you're in prison. That's Ohio. Wow. That's scathing. Um, maybe, you know, could cross that off my travel list. Um <laughs> Um, they do have good ice cream, though. I'll, I'll give them. Okay, but maybe not worth the the effort of surviving. No, and I'll joke around with people from Ohio all the time. I, we call it the armpit of America and everything else, but that's a different story. So, what was your first foray into, or serious foray into, um, you know, entrepreneurship? Then, sure. I, I mean, the, the real first real real business was when I was attending college at NYU. So there was something called an audio tech service bureau that we created, which was kind of like a, a computer hub system uh, for audio text. And we put literally almost nothing into it. Uh, we went around and put flyers on cars uh, around the boroughs of New York. And a month later, we had like 50 grand. Uh, and we were off to the races. And we were like, well, this works. Yeah. Uh, and so sure enough, that started popping pretty damn quickly. Um, how did that you know, lead on from there? Did, it, did that success continue? Well, I mean, that, that taught me one lesson in that it, it had a certain life. It wasn't something that could end up becoming a legacy company. It wasn't something that was an asset, a long-term that could be traded. That had a life of about two, two or three years. And so that led to a business brokerage uh, that I ended up going ahead and opening in New York City. In New York City, I opened that business brokerage because, well, I was opening it with a guy that had opened 200 business brokerages before, uh, one of the largest of it. He had retired. Uh, but we had a different thesis we were trying to do. And sure enough, you know, that took off. We ended up becoming the largest in New York City, but it didn't fulfill what we tried to do. It became a very much a golden handcuffs type of deal where even though you're making a lot of money, it's not a business. It is very much is a full-time job uh, that you're chained to versus a business that can act as a pump. So that's obviously a great first, le well, second or first lesson to have in, in business, right? That you know, it's all about, I suppose, the business model. What other learnings did you take 
from that experience or you know that golden handcuffs moment what did that that teach you not to do in the future well our goal with the business from the beginning was to end up creating a new model i won't go into details uh, but that would have at least national sustainability Uh, and the model that we ended up creating was very much new york oriented yeah it was able to penetrate uh, new york and, and get money but in a way it really was a massive failure uh, because even though we could generate this, I had no interest in going ahead and just selling businesses for selling business sake. I was there to create a, a model that expanded and was scalable. Uh, and that business taught me a hell of a lot of lessons. You know, I had people that were working for me at the time that were twice my age, if not almost three times my age. Uh, and regardless of the age difference, I, I call, you know, taking care of employees at a certain level professional babysitting because. That's what that was, that business. And it taught me I didn't want to be in the business of professional babysitting. But that business for itself, yes, it made money, but it was a massive failure in my opinion. And why wasn't it scalable? The labor component couldn't be duplicated. So the the thing about a business sale versus a real estate sale, something like real estate can almost in a way be standardized. So you have market comparables, uh, you have historicals, you have a physical asset, you have everything else. But when it comes down to a business, uh, you know, you have to have due diligence. And doing due diligence on a company that's doing half a million dollars or $150 million costs the same. So in order to do real due diligence, it's very cost prohibitive for smaller companies, even mid-sized companies, to be able to standardize that sale. Because that sale can't be standardized, meaning that you know, there's not just a set of check boxes that you can have. You know, companies operate differently financially, even though they, they're supposed to operate a certain way. Uh, they don't really necessarily disclose everything on their taxes. We would put buyers in a closing room and have to step out for those conversations, you know, but there was stuff that you couldn't do, let's say, whereas with real estate, you can. It's very objective or more objective, uh, not 100%, but more objective. So we would have everything from, you know, figuring out the pricing of that company where it should be. And you'd have estimates that, okay, it's something like three times monthly gross revenues to as high as, you know, two years, three years uh, uh, of gross. And and those numbers were just off the charts and they would vary with no rhyme or reason. So that taught me that from the beginning, you know, certain business valuations could not really be objective unless they were past a certain sales volume threshold. So that was definitely a lesson learned from there. The other thing was, uh, if you leave two buyers in a room alone, good stuff and bad stuff can happen. So you don't don't really want to do that too much. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, that sounds also a really great schooling, right? And a really great education because business brokers, you're just seeing a full spectrum of, of businesses. So that must have that been was a great for you, decision. really. That, that was a, That's why I started it. I said, okay, uh, worst case scenario, I'm young. I've got you know a certain amount of time to do this. I just want to learn about all these different business types. I mean, we dealt dealt with everything from, and this is it was in the city of New York, quite literally, uh, from plastics manufacturers and converters to chocolate companies to every retail type of store, uh, every type of distribution company, uh, professional services. I mean, it was a, a real rapid education. And how old were you at the time? I think it was about 21, 22. Yeah, that is, yeah. It's basically like doing a real-life MBA, right? Exactly. Mm. Yeah, no doubt. 
what did your family think of your entrepreneurial kind of endeavors? I mean, it's it's really just my brother and my and my mom and my mom. My mom was very entrepreneurial. I remember growing up in Ohio and, you know, she was struggling to really keep that roof over my brother in my head, uh, but she always had brilliant business ideas. I mean, extremely, but she could never get them off the ground. There was no such thing as a venture capital ecosystem in Ohio. There still isn't. Uh, she was a female in the 80s. So good luck on, on that with the odds stacked against you. But she did finally make, and, and I don't know if it's okay to curse on this, so curse warning, uh, she did finally make fuck you money, uh, but it was well in her 50s, but she did finally make it. What was she doing? Uh, she ran a very large child care center oh, right. up in the Northeast. So she created from scratch and built it up and, and got it off the ground. See, and that's a great example of how, you know, it's never too late in business, right? Because I think uh, there's, again, there's a, like a real narrative out there, particularly on social media, that you have to be, you know, really young and Mark Zuckerberg's age to start a business and succeed. What do you think about that? I, we find we think the success rates are completely opposite. Uh, it's inverse in relation to your age. So, you know, we have a 59-year-old uh, retired, mark, not retired, but fired uh, marketing exec during COVID. Uh, the following year was able to get product of the year in the trucking industry. We've got a 75 or 80-year-old grandma in South Africa uh, that launched a, a garment on QVC successfully, uh, we see that if anything, the average age when it starts going above 35, 45, 55, uh, there is a direct correlation with the higher age, higher success rates typically. That's really interesting data. And it's possibly an obvious question, but why, why do you think there is that correlation? Well, I think it's a couple things. Obviously, you can say wisdom and all this other stuff, but I really don't think it is. I, I think it has to do with self-awareness and the, the, the reality, or I don't know how you would say it, but the recognition that once you've been out there for a good amount of time, you realize stuff doesn't happen quickly. Mm. So the ability to delay gratification, to trust the process and go through that, you know, the older that you get, you realize that that is the process. You know, it's that ugly stuff. It's not some clean thing that, hey, let's get on this happy joy ride. You know, we call it the roller coaster of awesomeness. And the roller coaster of awesomeness can either be a hellacious ride or it can be something that is something that you make it what it is and you decide not to get off and you just stick it out. Definitely. And going back to your your mom and, you know, she said or you said that she was very entrepreneurial. Did that have an influence on you? It did, but, you know, believe it or not, a lot had to do with my stepfather, who I hated viciously. Uh, and you know, he had me involved with the market and analyzing stuff from a very young age. I started reading prospectuses when I was 10, 11 years old. I started telling him what to do and he put money into it. So, you know, I got an education from the investment side, uh, very early, but I think, yes, the entrepreneurial side came from her. Uh, she always had these ideas of, you know, different types of food companies, uh, different types of just businesses and distribution, uh, but she could never get them off the ground. She never really had the opportunity to. Did you ever partner with her at all in any of those ventures? Oh, my God, no. We can't be around each other for more than two hours. Even though we love each other to death, to this day, we can't be around for more, each other for more than two hours. Why is that? I don't know. I wish I knew. I mean, Jess, if I knew, well, then I'd be able to solve it. But we're just, we're like oil and water. We, we're like uh, fighting fish. Is that a mutual thing on both sides? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, I, I don't know. It's always been like that. I mean, from a, from a young age, we, we love each other to death. Don't get me wrong, but we just, we're, we just, we don't, we don't skew the same way. Okay. So you starting all these companies and, you know, starting the biggest business brokerage in New York at 21, sure. what, what gave you the, the, the confidence to do that? Because that's quite, that's quite bold steps, right, at, at such a young age. So I, I learned at a very young age to basically tell people to go fuck themselves when my ideas uh, they didn't like. And I think that that just gave me uh, the ability to go ahead and do whatever I thought was right and have the, the faith in it. Uh, you know, from the time I was, again, nine years old, a lot of happened around nine, ten. You know, I remember coming up with this great idea, which I thought was great. It was a horrible idea. But it was a great idea for a new uh, brake for a car. And I told my mom about it and she said, oh, yeah, go tell your, your father about it, your stepfather. And I went and told my stepfather he was an electrical engineer by training and he proceeded to completely shit on that idea uh, left and right. And I remember to this day, I was like in my head, fuck you, you know, you don't know damn shit. And I don't know why it wasn't like, OK, and I listened to him, didn't listen to him at all. And I think that kind of set the tone for my path from that day. And what is that? Is that? belief in your uh, abilities is that belief in the ideas that you're coming up with well i once took a test a psychological test because somebody had a theory and i think there was a a, a classification there called disagreeableness or agreeableness okay. and so on a scale of one to a one to 99 or whatever is it like if you're a one that means that you agree with everybody and if you're a 99 out of 100 people in that room that means you're going to disagree with 98 of them okay well, I, I registered 99 on that scale, so as high as possible. So there's two things with those people. Either you end up creating businesses typically and are driven in a certain way, or you end up in prison for doing God knows what. <laughs> so I guess I didn't end up in prison and I'm doing businesses. Did you ever have any sort of doubts or fears about leading those companies or starting those companies? And how did you sort of overcome those? You, you have that every day, uh, even to this day. So, you know, I call it that little voice inside your head. You know, you wake up in the morning, uh, you hear it, you feel it. Uh, you know, if it's cold outside, the last thing you want to do is take the covers off and start facing that day. Uh, you can feel it during the day. You have, you know, ups and downs and the little ups and downs and whatever it would be. You go to sleep at night and you have a little bit of anxiety. I don't think it ever goes away. I think it's kind of like working out. I, I saw a sign on a gym over here that it never gets easier. You just get stronger. And so even though you get better at putting these voices out and whatever, uh, each day is really a fight in terms of dealing with those things. But those things are make or break. If you act on them, uh, that's what ends up killing you when, when you listen to the negative voices. When I make a decision, I make it once. I don't revisit that decision. I don't go back to it. I literally deal with that decision and I see it through to the end. That's how I deal with it. And it's a very difficult thing to do. Because uh, you have a lot of distractions along the way that want to yank you down and pull you down. Uh, and so you say no to a lot of bad stuff, but you also say no to a lot of good stuff. Uh, and that's the hard part, saying no to the good stuff uh, that are the distractions. Have you ever had it, though, where, you know, you've decided on a, a course of action, you've made a decision, and then during that path, you thought actually maybe this wasn't the right decision or this isn't going as planned. And then you've thought about reverting back to the other decision. 
No, I, I don't. And, and, and I, I'm not trying to be like like snarky or kind of like a wise ass or anything else. Uh, but I really don't. I mean, for me, I, I don't revisit that decision. So, for example, if I'm going to go ahead and start a business, whatever that business is, I'll start down that path. Uh, I, you know, day one, you're all excited. Day two, the reality hits you and you're like, oh, shit. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, that's the point of how you get through that. And so even in the beginning stages, that that idea, that whatever you set out to do may not be what you thought it would be. But it's typically always going to be a stepping stone. It's always going to evolve. It's always going to iterate. So I'm comfortable, perfectly comfortable with not being comfortable mm. in the beginning stages of a business because I know how they evolve. It's kind of like judging, you know, a baby in the uterus that's a little tiny embryo and saying, oh, no, you know, or, hey, yeah, this is going to be the greatest thing. You don't know how it's going to evolve. You don't know what type of person it's, it's going to be. Same thing with the business. I don't have a crystal ball on knowing what it is, but I know the process. And that process is you don't stop in the middle of that process. You see it through to the end. Have you made a decision in the past which you actually regretted uh, in hindsight? Have I made a decision in the past that I've regretted in hindsight? Well, I fired my brother once, which that wasn't kind of really good, uh, but he deserved it. All right. No, I'm just, I'm, you know, most of my decisions that are in the past that I regret don't really have to do with business. They have to do with people. Uh, so in my 20s, in my early 30s, uh, you know, I viewed people as cogs. Uh, and that was really the wrong way to view people. It was good at the time. It worked for, you know, learning and everything else. Uh, but it took me a long time to really appreciate the value of people, the value of the team members, uh, the value of the people and their souls and their life that they give to help me get those companies off the ground. And I really didn't value that at all in the beginning stages. And what changed? Kids. You know, kids put it in perspective. Uh, the second I had my first child, uh, almost all that changed. Now, my behavior didn't change immediately, uh, but I was like, hmm. You know, started looking at it through different eyes. So maybe it took having the kids that ended up changing that. My kids, thank God, uh, view relationships much, much differently than I did as a child. But they have a much better childhood too. So, mm. and that that surprised me when you said that, actually, because you know people as cogs. Because that's mm. you know in contrast to one of the stories you gave earlier. Well, you gave two stories, yeah. which were that very empathetic. Um, you know, 10-year-old or teenager, what what kind of change in between those those two periods? Well, I think it's not a contradiction. I think that one is the customer, all right, and one is the business, okay? So, you know, I feel like with the customer, yes, you're empathetic. You're doing whatever the hell it takes. But I feel like with business, you know, almost in a way, all the people issues are typically, in those eyes when I was younger, they were distractions, they were things that caused lack of focus. So a person's inability to focus or inability to have discipline really affected how they interacted as a business person, I found. Like, for example, you know, to this day, I won't do business with anybody uh, that typically is more than a minute or two late. All right. It's something I, I dealt with at a very early age. I just don't have any flexibility on it whatsoever. You know, but that was something I learned at an early age because those people always ended up becoming bad relationships in terms of the business, but it didn't make them bad people. It didn't make them, you know, evil or anything. But, you know, for me, business was something different. I took it very, very seriously. Still do. And so I expect people, you know, to operate a certain standard, at least in my circle, 
to be able to do that. So, I, but at the same time, you know, I'm not going to give a, 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 an explicit example, but, you know, there was a team member that went through a very rough patch and they went through a rough patch for a year. Well, you know, do I cut that person off? Well, this is a person that I fought battles with for many years. This is a person that we built things for many years. So no, they get a pass. You know, they get a pass on those things and, and do whatever the hell they need to to get their life back in order. But if somebody comes right on and they start having those problems, no, I'm sorry, I'm not empathetic. So it's kind of a, a mix of where, you know, the early and the, the later. And that example you just gave of that person getting a pass, is that you, yep. is that your decision now as things stand? Or would you have had a different decision when you were 20 and 30 and viewing that person as a cog? In my 20s, I would have let them go immediately. Uh, they weren't fulfilling the obligation. They couldn't do whatever. But at the same time, you know, did it hurt us? Not too much. You know, so it wasn't a big hurt. Uh, and it just makes sense to really, at that stage, you trust in people. You really, really do. At least I have. And it's never come back to haunt me on that. I've had partners that have ended up screwing me left and right. I get that. Uh, and I'm really vicious about that relationship and the way they're structured. Uh, and when I say vicious, I mean the standards and what I accept or don't accept. Uh, but really, when it comes to the interactions of the people on the core team, it depends on how long they've been with us and what we've done together. Mm. I've had a lot of people on, on on this podcast who have talked about, um, you know, business partnerships imploding. That's definitely one of the the common, um, you know. Yeah, but there's almost always red flag. There's almost always red flags, Jez. And with, with business part, there really are. There's usually red flags from the very and what people episode. they ignore them. Yeah, they ignore them. Is that talking from experience on your part? No, one hundred percent. I absolutely. I mean, we teach founders that left and right. Like this, that's when they come to you and they say something, they tell you about a partner. I'm like, but that's a, a a huge red flag. You don't see it now, but okay, you may be one degree off in the very beginning, and you're going down this road. Uh, and, you know, going down the same road. But if you go six months out, nine months out, that person's in another universe. Mm. You know, you've got to be aligned philosophically almost from the very beginning. Maybe not the same intensity, but you have to be aligned philosophically. What's one example of the a, a red flag or the worst red flag that you kind of ignored that you should have taken notice of? Well, the worst are the landmine partners. This isn't a red flag, but it's the landmine partners. Landmine partners are the ones that, oh, God, they're doing really phenomenal and then you hit a bumpy road and suddenly it's freaking a landmine city. Uh, and so you imagine that you're stuck out in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, hundreds of miles from, from civilization. There's no people and you step on that landmine. Well, if you keep your leg on that landmine, you're going to go ahead and die from starvation. And if you pull it off, well, it's going to hurt like holy hell and you may die. Well, that's the only decision you have with a landmine partner. And those landmine partners, they're worse than the people with red flags. They're there, that's stuff where you have to go ahead and take the medicine, eat your spoonful of shit, and move on. You know, certain red flags are timeliness. Certain red flags are uh, they have squirrels, which I call like you're walking down a road and you have a squirrel and with a dog and the dog pulls you another direction. They have a lot of squirrels that start interrupting or impacting what you're doing. Uh, they don't take with the same intensity, even approaching the same intensity, the way that you view the business. A no-show. Even what, what Dude, you don't deal at all with no-shows, uh, people that don't speak up and fight for their ideas. Uh, that's a gargantuan red flag because you don't want to surround yourself with the yes-men mm. because those people end up becoming, believe it or not, the horrible partners. Uh, those end up turning, turning into viciously bad partners. So you want people that fight for what they do 
and act as ownership mentality. What we look for is ownership mentality. That's the green flag. And how do you define ownership mentality? I think ownership mentality is treating whatever business you're doing as if their life depended on it. And what does that look like in reality? Is that like sacrifice? Is that commitment? And how is that measured? Let me give you an example. So I had a founder call me at 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning because he had the wrong honey in his manufacturing or on his can, his soft drink. Uh, and he was basically losing his shit and basically crying at that stage. But he knew I'd take that damn call uh, because we're rowing the boat in the same damn direction. So, and he had to make a decision right then with the manufacturing on a, what the fuck do I do here? I'm stuck. Well, that's what you do as a partner. You know, uh, if you need me to go ahead and get on a plane to get the CES in Las Vegas to close the ex-chairman of Silicon Valley Bank on your deal, well, that's what you want in a partner. Uh, you want a partner that's willing to go ahead and go to the ends of the earth to help you get your stuff done. That's what you need in a partner. Otherwise, it's not a partnership. What it is, is a, 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 you have a relationship with a subordinate, even though they say they're a partner. They're not a partner. And have you created some kind of like checklist or some kind of like exercise to, to, to measure that, to, you know, to help identify people like that? Because it, if you don't know the person, right, it's very difficult to have a understanding of will they, essentially what you're saying is will they give their life for you or that the business if the shit is the fan. But that's very difficult to ascertain from the beginning. Yeah, well, first of all, you, you can't you can't expect that from anybody in the beginning. Uh, it's got to be, it's really a process over time, all right? But I already asked you that question, all right? I already gave you and filtered that question, all right? With you, from the second we started talking, it was the first thing I asked you, all right? Do you remember or no? Um, I... Don't remember. I think you said, why, why did I get into business? What, right. What led you down this path? What was it? So I ask a person why they became whatever it is that they do. So if they're a developer, why they became a developer. If they're a CFO, why did they become a CFO? Uh, if they're, you know, a salesman or a biz dev or whatever, why did they become that? You know, what was the path? What, how, what led them to that? The reason I ask that is because if they answer it honestly, it's literally the Rosetta Stone for interacting with them. If they don't answer it honestly, you know, and they give you a general oriented answer. And that tells you a lot about the person, you know, in terms of dealing with them. So that willingness to go ahead and dive authentically, really, into why they're doing something that's required, uh, because that's the start of a real relationship. Uh, and that's what we teach founders to do with everybody, whether it's investors, whether it's recruiting their team member, whether it's dealing with, you know, the manufacturing plan or suppliers. Uh, you always ask whoever you're dealing with why they do what they do because they, A, never get asked it, but B, it goes ahead and makes that relationship start off on the right foot uh, versus it being transactional. It becomes a human thing. Mm, I like it. So really, um, I, I suppose for the listeners out there, it's a really easy thing to get their head around and to you know to implement. So what led you down this path? Why why'd you do what you do? Sure. I partially answered it already. I, I went ahead. I, I grew up in Ohio. I saw my mom really struggling to keep that roof over her head. And she had brilliant business ideas. She could never get them off the ground. There's no such thing as a venture capital ecosystem in Ohio. Uh, but literally seeing her do that had an impact. And that's what really partially led me 
to go ahead and really create gusher. The, the, the real impetus for it, though, in recent times is I was at a meeting in uh, Nelson Mullins in Washington, D.C. They're a law firm, a venture capital meeting. I was down there and I saw this group of entrepreneurs that, well, they didn't look like everyone else. They didn't sound like everyone else, didn't talk like everyone else. They didn't wear hoodies and attend Stanford. Uh, they didn't live in Silicon Valley, New York, or Israel, which accounts for 95% of all VC dollars, but they were fucking brilliant. But they had no clue that they didn't have a chance in hell of getting $1 of funding from any VC or angels or anything else. So I said to my partners, hey, I wonder if there's a way to go ahead and show them what we do. And that was really the birth of, of Gusher, the platform. And did you end up working with them and, and you know, have they gone led on to success? Yeah, we, we have lots of them on our platform right now. And they have companies, they have all different things. I mean, we have more than 350 different portfolio companies in all different industries, all different verticals across the globe. Everything from B2B, B2C, B2B2C, anything you can think of. So in some ways, you've kind of gone full circle, I would say. You know, you started off in business brokerage working with a, a huge range of companies, and now you're working with a huge range of companies, and obviously in a different way, right? Well, believe it or not, one of the goals with that business brokerage when we were talking national was the ability to fund mm. the startup and the creation and the sale of companies in a different way. And that's the part, that's the mechanism that we couldn't figure out, that we couldn't get. Uh, and it took a long time to be able to figure that out precisely. And what did change? What, what, what was the sort of unlocking piece that then allowed you to work in that way? Sure. Well, there was something... When I started businesses from the time that I was in New York, uh, you know, the, the real businesses, we never needed any type of real capital whatsoever. So we always did something called finagling, meaning that if I needed real estate space, well, I'd go talk to the developer and I'd figure a way to get that space. If I needed manufacturing, I'd go talk to the manufacturer and figure out a damn way we could get that manufacturing. If we needed media distribution, uh, we would do revenue share deals and everything else, all this different type of stuff without needing any capital whatsoever, nothing, Zippo, nada. Uh, and that really was the basis of doing it. So after I, I created all those different entities and working through all the different scenarios, after a while, you start to see patterns. And so then we started turning them into processes, those patterns and the processes, which enabled us to grow, which that then led to really the birth of Gusher. I was suddenly saw it, saw all the different things tie together in that one moment. And I remember it. I have it on video. I actually recorded it for the partners. I said, what do you think about this idea? I think it was March 15th, 2015 was the idea. Okay. So, so it was a, it was kind of a germ of an idea that you'd been kind of working on in your head for many, many years. It sounds like. Many. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I mean, I'm all about the underdog. I like the underdog. I like David Goliath scenarios. I hate going ahead and doing something standard or iterative. I like really taking on the big stuff. That's what I like doing. And interestingly, I think that that germination of that idea over time is probably goes back to the, the point we were talking about earlier, which is why do why is there a correlation between age and success in founders? And it's potentially it's that in some ways is that you essentially get more knowledge, you get more experience. And you get to potentially um, kind of work on your ideas. Yeah, something like that. Would you, would you, how, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, but I also think it's maybe, you know, what you're looking for in terms of the end game. In the beginning, it really was all about money, 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 money. How do I make this money? How do I make this? And maybe as I've matured, I don't know, I can't speak for other people, but it becomes more about impact. And then when you start talking about impact, well, then when you start talking about impact, it actually becomes a bigger form of money uh, that you don't realize. So by not concentrating on just the money and you concentrate on the impact, the money comes. Right. It comes. Well, yeah. Why? Why does it come? I think because your your total focus is on the impact, which really is awareness. It's about distribution. Uh, it's about really getting it out there in the biggest way possible. And so you're reaching more people. And so, you know, if, if somebody wants to open up a cookie shop, that's awesome. Open up a cookie shop. Have a, have a lifestyle business here or whatever they're called in England. What the hell do you call them? You call them something else. What do you call cookies? Um, biscuits. Mm. All right. So if somebody's going to open, I don't even know if they're called biscuit shops, right? So you're going to go ahead and sell biscuits. Well, that's great. Awesome. You can have one location. That, that's beautiful. But if you're talking about bringing this great new formula, this great new taste, and you want more people to just to have this and, and do it, well, you're going to go about it with a different model. You're going to be talking about the philosophy of that cookie. You're going to be thinking about the marketing of that cookie in, in intensely, how you can spread the awareness of that cookie. And so, you know, then the sales follow. It, it, it's really concentrating on the impact. And I know that was a horrible example, uh, but really that's, that's what I'm talking about. It's more impact. That leads to capital. That leads to money. So is that to do with like following, following a passion or focusing on quality rather than focusing on, you know, pure profit? That, that, that's a, the $20 million question right there. That's really, you know, that's a hard thing. And I don't want to go ahead and pretend that it's A or B or black and white. I think it's a very nuanced thing right there. And, and you hit the nail on the head. Where does it go? I mean, right now, uh, Gusher, we have 350 portfolio companies. I'm hands-on, and I really literally know every founder and everything else uh, that's on to Gusher. However, we're growing at a 10x rate. So there's no way for this next stage to know every founder. So, you know, where does the cutoff come from? Where does it become, you know, more of a, a, a standalone product? And do you lose value in that? I don't think so. I think there's a way to manage it as you grow. I think past a certain point, yes, you will lose quality. You will grow through a birth, a reset, like a phoenix going ahead and having to die almost in a way, but come out better. Uh, things happen. You know, that's that's just evolution. All you can do is ride the damn ride and do your best. Yeah, no, that's that's, uh, that's a probably a whole different conversation uh, there, just right there talking about... Um, that and there might not even be an answer um by the sounds of things so given your you know real breadth of kind of experience in business and you've already sort of hinted at some of them already failure i know has permeated um your your you know business career in, in you know some shape or form um because you've you've kind of you know offline mentioned a couple of examples what, what do you think has been the most significant business failure you've had and dealt with? Uh, I'd say it was probably a company called Osolo Foods. Uh, Osolo Foods was my greatest success and failure simultaneously. All right. So let me explain what I meant. So I had a software company before Osolo Foods that literally it just, it, it, it did not work at all. I mean, it just basically absolute left me in, in decimated. I had 1200 bucks to my name when I started Osolo, literally 1200 bucks to my name. 
Um, I basically was one step away from being evicted and out on the street. Uh, and I woke up one day and I was on a low carb diet and I said, you know, I just want a fucking low carb muffin. Uh, I just got sick and tired of eating bacon and eggs and I wanted a low carb blueberry muffin. All right. Didn't exist at the time. There was nothing like it, nothing out there. Zippo. So I did what anybody would do. You try to find a recipe, you try to put stuff together. I, I'm not good at that stuff and it was horrible and there was nothing great online at the time. So I started reaching out to food chemists uh, and I contacted more than 500 of them on the old AOL system uh, that told me it couldn't be done. It shouldn't be done. It wouldn't be done. I mean, I had PhDs tell me to go fuck myself. Uh, that's how, how strong reaction. Yeah. How low, low carb was extremely controversial at that time. Uh, and so they all told me to go fuck myself, do whatever. Uh, and sure enough, I came across one guy that said, sure, I'll help you. Uh, and two months, three months later, I had in my hand a low-carb blueberry muffin. I was down to my last penny, uh, but that damn thing tasted great. And I was like, got a business. This is definitely a business. And sure enough, I mean, there was you know the ups and downs and everything else, but we became the largest low-carb manufacturing company uh, in the world at the time of uh, bread products and everything else. It was crazy. It was a crazy ride. Absolutely crazy. So what success did you kind of see? You said you became the largest manufacturer in the world. Like how many years was that over and, you know, what scale? Right, I, we, we, I slept on a factory floor basically for two years. Uh, and then out of the blue, we just hit it. Uh, we had a PR piece come out uh, and it just went gargantuan. We ended up being everywhere. Just start, I mean, everywhere. Uh, I got letters from, I remember a letter from a person that was going on a vacation on some island uh, out in the middle of South America or Central America, I don't remember where, that they had to take a plane, then take another plane, then take a little island hopper, then take a boat. They stepped off it and they saw our rolls there. And I was like, be shit. Uh, but at the same time, that company also imploded. All right. So it was successful. It made money. It did everything else. But when Dr. Robert Atkins, this, you probably don't recall this, he fell outside his office or, or home or something in New York City. Uh, split his head open, and three days later, he was dead. And the population went from 16 or 17% of people being on low carb to less than one half of 1%. Uh, the whole company imploded. So one day, I had hundreds of employees. I had three factories. The next day, I'm the only person sitting in these gargantuan factories. And it was just me. And that was horrible. That was horrible. Took me years to go ahead and recover. Wow, yeah. Lots, lots to unpack then. So, we, yeah, how many years did it take you to get? You said hundreds of employees, and you mentioned that PR um, article, which was yeah. the the catalyst. What time period then did you go from that PR um, article to then the sort of hundreds of employees and sort of global distribution? Sure, that that from that PR to global took less than a year. Wow. I mean, it was insane. yeah, it was insane. It was crazy growth. Uh, and that's why, you know, we believe in lightning rod businesses, something that, that generates free press and is controversial. We like controversial businesses because we know how they grow. Uh, now, they may die shortly, too, uh, but you're able to go ahead and pop them and usually able to go ahead and grow them very, very successfully. Just as a side note, what, how do you describe, I've never heard that expression before, lightning rod. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, at, at that time, you know, Low carb was extremely controversial. 
Uh, people are like, no, you shouldn't do that. No, you should. Oh, it's just cal calories in, calories out. Now you have versions of keto. Mm -hmm. You have versions of carnivore. You have low carb. You have Atkins. You have everything, you know, all these different variants of it that it's made a mainstay. And, you know, you have more science backing it and everything else now that came out. Uh, but back then there was almost no science backing it. Uh, just really people that have done it that have lost weight. Uh, so, you know, I it, it was something that, you know, low carb bread. Well, you can't have bread on a low carb diet. So we got free press left and right. I mean, we would contact newspapers or whatever, and they would just write articles about us or put my face on TV or whatever at the drop of a hat because that was so controversial. Got it. So it essentially provokes um, a reaction and provokes discussion and therefore... Right, exactly. You want to do something... Who wants to do something on a new chocolate bar? Well, nobody. Yeah. All right. But you do something that is controversial. Well, they can play both sides of it. Yeah. And they, they're there to go ahead and have their viewers and audience and everything else uh, interact with the story So and find it interesting. So it was an interesting story. Given that growth in that company that you mentioned was really quick, given that you just had before that, the last company you said left you decimated, was there any doubts that actually that was the right decision to scale that company that fast because of the, you know, was there any sort of residue left over, any fear or doubts that actually, oh, here I go again, you know, this is going to leave me decimated or is that not how your mind works? Not how my mind works. My mind works, oh my God, let's treat this as taking a shower and shower off that last business because it was so bad. Uh, this is, oh, oh my God, I finally have the money that I should have been making. Oh my God, I finally have success that I should have had. Oh my God, I've been sleeping on this factory for about fucking time that it's paying off. I mean, that's the way that I thought. You know, I'm like, I fucking deserve this. I drove in Northeast Pennsylvania during winter with the air conditioning on because our first product was a frozen product and I didn't have a refrigerated truck. And I'm the one that made it, that boxed it, that put it up there and put it in the freezer section. No, you're damn well not. I deserve that money. So... <laughs> that's the way that I viewed it. I wasn't shy. So there was no like, you know, you were just lapping up the growth kind of thing that in that company. No, you'll live for, at least in my world, I, that's what you'll live for. You pay this price day in and day out, day in and day out. There's nothing, 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 nothing. And this is what entrepreneurs don't get. There's nothing sometimes for a very long time. Even if you get funded, that doesn't mean you have something. Not out of funded companies fail. So you're going to have nothing for this period of time and you damn well better get comfortable with not even like almost in a way not having human interaction, which you should be forcing yourself to, but having no progress, no growth, no momentum. The whole point is once you get momentum, you ride that momentum. You don't stop. That is the one time you don't stop. When you get momentum, there are no weekends. When you get momentum, there's not vacation. You ride that as far as you possibly can because it's it, it doesn't come very often when the momentum comes. And in your world, how would you define momentum? Momentum is when you start having monthly sales, typically that have month over month sales growth of typically 30, 40, 50% plus. Right. Yeah. So that's usually the objective number. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the reality is, is that when you can't feel like you can manage it anymore. Mm -hmm. So the tools are constantly changing when you're outgrowing the people when you're outgrowing the process, is that from day to day, something's always lagging. That's typically when you have momentum. Got it. And keep up. So circling back to Mr. Atkins, was that the main reason why that business ended up 
uh, essentially collapsing overnight. Oh yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, everybody did, even Atkins. So although every the entire industry went either Chapter Eleven, Chapter Thirteen dissolved, other than a couple na names that ended up just being private equity swaps and never made it back to the top. So explain that. Career. I don't, I don't get that. Okay, so so a lot of companies just went bankrupt during that time. A lot of low carb companies, and and at right at our peak, and we were growing, started having all these competitors, everything else come in left and right. They all evaporated, uh, almost all of them. There were only one brand maybe left, and even they filed uh, for bankruptcy. Well, what's so that they had a reset? Well, because there was no lightning rod. All right, so what happened was Atkins' death taught me a couple things. One. You've got to have a lightning rod, all right, or be in a lightning rod industry. And when Atkins died, there was nobody there promoting low carb. There was nobody there to take the arrows uh, that were being slung at low carb. There was nobody on, on TV talking about low carb. Uh, and it wasn't something that I personally could step into that role. I wasn't a doctor. It wasn't set up this way, you know, our brand and our company to do it. And nobody else was. And it took a good 15, 20 years uh, for the industry to come back. So when I say lightning rod, because his presence wasn't there anymore, that industry imploded. But it also taught me a lesson to really don't ride other people's industries, other people's markets, other people's coattails, and be your own damn lightning rod for your own industry. Well, I didn't realize, you know, because I the reason I was confused is because I would have thought that there was, given the size of the industry, that there would be yep. other people that were able to talk in the, with the same kind of gravitas as 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 him and maybe he had other people that he was working with that essentially just took up his mantle and 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 spoke in the same way as as he did it was a different world it was the beginning of the internet right. uh you didn't have social like it did now uh you didn't have distribution like you did now you didn't have direct to consumer uh in a way like you did now where you could bypass the retail and everything else so not at all. Uh, and that's why the industry imploded. Uh, and, it, and it really did. It was across the board. Uh, and so, you know, suddenly you have this person that almost in a way the cult of personality propped that industry and he was riding momentum and suddenly he's gone. Well, can you keep that momentum going? Well, I mean, let's see what happens with Apple. You know, Apple reached a certain level. Uh, they're able to keep it. But have they created anything that's fundamentally new or different or anything else uh, since Steve Jobs passed away? Don't go into a, to that because that's a whole nother mm. topic. But really, the cult personality on building a company can go a long way. And when they're gone, typically the company goes bye bye eventually. So, what were the first signs uh, that 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 company was on its way out? How quickly did it go downhill? It was like that. When I say like that, I mean in a period of three to six months. Right. Uh, the, the three months after Atkins' death were our. I mean, we went back to sales. Uh, that we hadn't seen in three, four years. And we were like, holy shit. Uh, and yet we had built our factory to go the opposite direction. So we had three plants and this new plant was built to go the opposite direction. And so that was that was not what we were ready for at all. Zero. So the were you at the peak of your momentum? Yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, and so, but also we thought that that was going somewhere else. Uh, meaning that we thought that it finally reached enough momentum to become a mainstream product. You know, I didn't know at that time with hindsight that if Atkins died, that the whole industry at that time would basically die. They wouldn't die fully, but it would mostly die. Uh, only in hindsight, you know, do I know that now. Yeah, because obviously, given this, this you know, discussion, it sounds like a, a fairly 
obvious risks to your business, right? But you didn't, you didn't obviously know that. Yeah, but think of it this way. You know, does Henry Ford, the car industry? Yes and no, not really. But, you know, was he the, the main guy like Elon right now taking maybe arrows at the time? There was nobody really for GM doing it. You know, there was no one for Chrysler doing it at the time. It was really, you know, Ford was the main person taking a hit. When he died, did the industry go? No. I mean, it was something that was something that was needed, became mainstream. You know, with, with Elon, would, uh, would electric cars die now if he died? No. But would they be where they are right now if he had died eight, 10 years ago? I don't know. And I don't know. So, you know, that cult of personality plays an important role. But, you know, that's something I didn't learn until until I learned it. The hard way. No, absolutely. So how did you react? You know, you said three to six months and you said your sales went right back down. Talk me through how you reacted to those sales dropping what actions did you take uh well literally you sit there and you go oh my god what the fuck am i gonna do you know we had we had lined up a very large financing i mean right as this was going on and it got pulled out from under us you know to be able to do our next stage of expansion so i'm sitting there going and we were in all these stores all right uh suddenly the product orders weren't coming in for additional orders that suddenly the turn wasn't happening. It wasn't happening at all. And this was during the summertime. And we're like, oh my God. I mean, suddenly we went from, you know, chains ordering 10 truckloads. I mean, 52 footers of our product and not ordering anything, uh, zero, nada. When it was like the number one selling product in their store. That's how severe it was, you know? So it was insulate cutting people, uh, which was a nightmare. Uh, people didn't want to be fired. I mean, they, they believed in the dream and what we were building. Um, you know, I lost a lot of friendships out of that. Uh, I became horribly depressed. I mean, horribly depressed uh, after that. And that was very, very difficult to come back from, extremely difficult, because there was no business uh, that I'd ever done in my past that I had worked as hard on, uh, had, had gone so full tilt, had put everything out there uh, that I possibly could. And I said, so I... I did that and it, it ended up here. That doesn't make sense. You know, that didn't make sense to me for a long time. What was the main catalyst for that depression? Was it the fact that you lost a business? Was it the, was it the people side of things? Was it the fact that you, there was two businesses in a row that went down? Because I was this close to having the quote unquote big thing happen. This close. I mean, so close. Not that you could taste it, but that, you could, you could literally, quite literally see it. I mean, all the things that were supposed to happen were happening. And then it got pulled out from under me. And that, that was the hardest thing, you know? And why was that such a difficult thing to, to take? Why did that lead to, you know, that, I suppose, mental health kind of crisis yeah. or, you know, impact? I, I think a lot of it had to do with the interactions. I, I, I look back now and, you know, I was talking with, more than 200 people a day, uh, every day, uh, day in and day out, nonstop, talking, 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 and then suddenly going to your isolated, mm. you know, machinery's still there. You know, you used to have a hum and you used to feel it literally underneath you, uh, the rumbling uh, of the ovens and everything else going, to suddenly there being nothing. You know, having children now, I laugh at what I'm going to say, but I equated it at the time to like the loss of a child. Mm. Uh, now it'd be like, it's just a business, but mm. you know, there's a difference between the software business beforehand and this one. This one, 
This one I took personally. I don't know really why. Maybe it's because I just wanted that fucking low carb blueberry muffin. But I took that one really, really personally. It still bugs me. It still angers me. So is that is that grief turned to anger now? Then was well, so, but it was grief. It was kind of grief at the time. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was grief. I mean, it's mostly anger. Uh, but I, I don't think anger is a bad thing. I think anger is a fuel. I think if you can use anger as a fuel with time. Uh, that takes the anger intensity down, uh, but it really helps fuel uh, the ability to push through bad times in whatever business you are. And I don't care if you're Mark Zuckerberg. Trust me, that guy has problems in bad days left mm-hmm. and right uh, doing it. Or, you know, and, you know, ha- going ahead and having a business that hits one time doesn't mean that, you know, suddenly everything else does. I mean, they've had a lot of failures and everything else, too. He just happened to be that one person, but he's the exception. Uh, standard businesses and everything else out there. Failure is part of what you're going to do day in and day out. Not maybe to that intensity level of that one thing that's really horrible, but you're going to have these small failures, these little failures, but those little failures quite literally are the substance, the stuff that the good stuff comes out of. And so you have to go through that. It's it's the furnace. The furnace is either going to burn you up and turn you to ash, or it's going to anneal you and make you harder and better to be able to then get success. I just didn't understand how much more annealing I needed after that. <laughs> but I think some people would, would say that, you know, or new entrepreneurs might say that they're scared of, of failure and that they worry about being able to come out the other side and they, they would be burnt up and never come out. Yep. So, so what? If you're going to make the decision, make the decision and you either accept the consequences and you live with them or you don't. I mean, if you're too afraid, then don't do it. However, trust me when I say this, and I mean it from firsthand experience, I've talked to somebody on their deathbed, my my real biological father, who I never met until I was 35, and he regretted, he regretted uh, right before he died, not doing what he always thought he should be doing, which is going to sound kind of crazy. He always thought he should have been doing more business. So I guess it is genetic. Uh, but you know, in terms of listening to that little voice inside your head, that to me is the biggest failure, not listening to it, ignoring it, uh, that a person can experience because that's what you're here for on the face of the earth. You're supposed to put that out there. Uh, that is your soul quite literally fighting to go ahead and get out. That's what you should be doing, letting it out. But what if the other voice in someone's head is uh, that's saying that is stronger, saying don't do it because you will fail and look like an idiot kind of thing? Yeah, sure. So uh, that's the thing that we're taught. I mean, that's not something that's innate to us. That's something that we're taught, you know, from the time that we're young. It's quite literally beaten out of us. You know, I think it really goes back to being a childhood and and basically saying you're either the type of person that fuck you, I'm doing it my way, which thank God all my kids are, but don't tell them that. Uh, Or you're the type of person that cowers down and is going to be, you know, have your soul stolen from you day by day. I mean, I think really it's a big deal. I mean, I'm not a big religious nut or anything like that, but I really think that that's important, letting that out. And going back to your, you know, what you said was a really difficult sort of depressive episode or or period. How did you overcome that? How did you come out the other side of that? Because it sounds pretty severe, right? I mean, not just that, you know, you mentioned the, the isolation you know, the 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 fact that you were on the cusp of something big and then, you know, you were hit by this this sort of depression. How did you, you know, come out the other side? Well, 
I do what I always do when I'm having a, a really bad time, and that's usually work out like a madman. I just started working out like like fucking crazy, but that didn't do it. It didn't. It it wasn't doing anything. Uh, and luckily, my wife is a, a psychologist, and she goes, "Listen, I know you're anti antidepressants or anything like that, uh, but I took antidepressants for a year, uh, and that's you know, and changed my whole viewpoint of, of depression and what it is." She's like, "If you had a broken arm, would you go to the hospital?" I'm like, "Of course." She goes, "Well, then dipshit, take take some of this, and and what happens?" And sure enough, it had an immediate impact on me. Uh, but I, I it had I had to be on it for at least a year for what I did, for how I felt. And getting off, it's a bitch, but that's another story. Mm. So she was, she actually advocated, you know, going yeah. for the pills. Yeah. That, and it worked for me. Mm. I was on it for about 12 months. What was the other impacts of that business closure? That's when really I started writing my, my stuff down objectively, my deal rules. And so I've got a whole list of deal rules uh, that I basically live by because of that business. So I codified it. Uh, so that's literally what I did. And so, you know, deal rule 28, trust the process. Deal rule 29, I am enough. You know, there's other deal rules. Good deal first, money second, et cetera, et cetera. All these different things. Uh, you know, listening to the red flags because they're objective. They're not subjective. Uh, and so I wrote out my philosophy of business. And so that was definitely a good thing because that's enabled me to do what I do today. Is that a book now? It sounds like it should be a book. It is. I didn't publish it. I wrote it for myself. People say I should publish it, uh, but I haven't published it. Mm, that sounds very valuable. But was there any, um, you know, financial impacts of, of that loss? Because obviously, you, you know, you had all that, all the manufacturing plants and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, did that... No, I, we were... We were we were generating a, a large amount of revenue. So it wasn't like we had a lot of liabilities or anything like that. We were about to take on a very large equity partner, but no. I mean, there were certain uh, ways that I got hit uh, because of guarantees and everything else uh, that were done years earlier as a result. Uh, but gargantuan hit, no. So there was a little bit of liability there, but it was more that here was this entity here one day and then completely wiped off the face of the earth the next. And that was rough. And how did that impact you know did you have business partners in that that deal not many uh there were only a couple of equity partners mm -hmm. and so i was the primary equity holder mm -hmm. and so others were very much minority and you talked about losing friends say a bit about that because that that sounds pretty tough and also why friends because you know were were they just who yeah who were they were they your staff well, I, I just, you know, I have a saying that, you know, friends can't be business partners, but business partners can become friends. And so that was one of those things where they weren't friends that became business partners. I knew better by then at that age not to do that. Uh, but literally they were business partners that became friends. And so, yeah, those friendships were lost. It was something that, you know, I'm the number one man there. I, I must be responsible for it and I take full responsibility for it. Uh, for the company not being there in a way. Uh, but really, it, it had a result of market and what was going on in the market that resulted in that. So I didn't see that it was a bubble. I thought it was something that was becoming more mainstay. And maybe I should have seen that, but I didn't. Was there any, looking back in hindsight, was there any things that you would have done differently? I, I probably would have done a lot differently. 
Um, but a lot of it had to do with manufacturing side of it. So we were very, very labor intensive. Uh, I would have gone ahead and changed that model or, or tried to, I would have put more dollars towards R&D to figure out the automation because our product, without getting too technical, most baking products are very much flour-based. So all the equipment is flour-based. Ours was very much water-based. And it's very difficult to have a baking process with uh, a water-based product. But if we would have put more time in that or saw you know, that our growth was happening so rapidly that we should have done that, that would have saved a lot of issues. Uh, the second thing is there's something called dimensional weight. All right. So when you have products like retail products or something else, uh, you may think that you get charged on the weight of what you're shipping, but it's not necessarily true. You can, but usually it's based upon the dimensions of the containers that you're shipping. Right, in. Well, the weight with something like a bread product that's mostly air ends up becoming a bitch. So there's ways around that that we could have been more strategic that we really didn't think of that we should have been thinking of from the very beginning uh, that I make damn sure any food companies that we have now do uh, from the very beginning of ideation because that can literally kill you. Uh, suddenly your shipping accounts for 30, 35% of your product. It, it's, a, it's a rough world. Did you ever think about pivoting that business to another food manufacturing business or was that just not possible two things one I, I don't necessarily believe that pivots exist okay i think that whatever company uh whatever road a company starts out on they typically stays on uh i i know that there's this magical idea of a pivot that sometimes unicorns have happened for that way slack is one of them etc but they're more the exception than the rule so i i fundamentally really don't believe in the ability to pivot um, if there was a way to do it, we would have done it. It was almost impossible. I didn't see a way to do it. Um, but also, you know, when it comes to really, you know, pivots or, or the food industry, I typically don't really like to do stuff twice. Uh, so unless it's something, you know, new, unless it was a, a new iteration or different uh, way of doing things, only then would I have done it. I would not have done it the exact same way or even like a sh slight shift vertically. I like to do new stuff. And did you discuss with your partners and your team at the time ways to salvage that business or did you just know that it was on its way out and you uh the the only yeah well i mean we had discussions uh we didn't have really much discussions because quite honestly i was a dictator of it mm -hmm. uh so and and involving the partners that were partners you know they didn't have the knowledge base that i did for the business and so really the only thing to do at that stage, it made sense just to liquidate uh, because there, there weren't any real losses. It just made immense sense to liquidate. There was nothing, the business wasn't there. It's like one day if you're a house painter, uh, the next day they just, every house has, you know, some type of siding other than aluminum that never needs painting. Well, you know, maybe you can bait the insides of the house, but assume that's gone too. You suddenly now have no market. You know, it's like you're the horse and buggy manufacturer and the cars are coming mm -hmm. down, you know? At what point did you realize that there was no future for that business. Well, you got to understand, I held on to the very last minute. I mean, the very last minute. They had to physically carry me out of my own office uh, to the very last minute. So I, I, I literally do not believe in quitting. That was when I was like, okay, that's time to quit. That was it. Did they... that, that game was over. <laughs> Who carried you out of who carried you out of the office? Well, I say that jokingly, but we, I wasn't we sure of you. Finally, serious. <laughs> it got us out of 
we ended up filing and then, you know, it's like the handing over the keys to liquidate. I'm like, oh, it was like a sword, like you're committing seppuku. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a bad day. It's just a bad day. Because you made the decision to go ahead with that business and you didn't want to deviate, right? Damn right. See it all the way through. Will you abandon your child just because they ran into difficulty or they were told they were you know, terminal? No, you hold their hand and you do whatever the fuck it takes to rate it up to the last minute. That's the way I feel about business. But even in a, even in this is a really good case study, actually, of when to challenge that because you, you're in a, you said it yourself, the rug had got pulled out from that, that whole market. Why did you try to just, just to carry on till the last minute? Because surely there wasn't, you couldn't see a way out. Well, because, well, there, there were a lot of things in place. So we had very large agreements with very large fast food chains, all right, that were right about to bring it out. Kind of like you've seen the vegan uh, burgers yeah. and everything else, by whatever uh, they did. Their, we were right at that stage of bringing in low-carb rolls to all these different names and everything else out there. But yet, right when Atkins got this dip happened, and all of them froze what they were doing. And so I thought maybe there's a chance that that ends up becoming, you know, the mainstream. You know, you got to understand, I wasn't thinking that this was a pop or a fad or anything else. I thought it was mainstream. And I thought it was ready to take the leap from, you know, a very small vertical to more mainstream. When 16, 70% of the population is doing low carb, well, you would think that it would stay. And it just popped. It just popped. The bubble. And did you get any feedback from any of those companies that were like, you know, now that he's dead, we're, we're not we're not on board with this. No, they just ghosted. Uh, suddenly the phone calls weren't getting returned. That's the word. You're like, what? You know, how is this happening? Yeah. It was bad. I'm so fascinated by this Atkins thing. It's, uh, it's such a, yeah, yeah it's, um, I, I can't believe a whole industry just died overnight because of, of, of of his... When I say overnight, it took like three to six yeah. months. But every everybody hit chapter eleven, chapter thirteen, uh, in three to six months. So I, I mean, that's that you know, overnight. That that's pretty overnight, right? In the grand scheme of things, three to six months. Oh, yeah, um, Bruce, yeah, absolutely. That's it's kind of crazy. So, how did you go from that, and then to go from that kind of wreckage? And you know, obviously, we've talked about the depression to start to rebuild your kind of business career and an entrepreneurial journey? Sure. Well, you go ahead and you just start seeing like what problems you have. And, you know, typically those problems end up making good ideas for possible companies. By the Blueberry Muffin originally. Yeah, exactly. Right. The same same thing. So, you know, I'm under an NDA for one thing, so I can't go too much into it. But there was a certain problem that I saw quite, quite honestly firsthand, a female issue. And so we ended up going ahead and contacting Walmart and Target and all these big chains with a one-page sell sheet before the product was even created. Uh, And they all said they wanted to take meetings with us. And so we ended up really creating that product for those meetings. And suddenly we knew we had another hit. Uh, And Right. And so instantly it was a completely different market, uh, totally different product. It had small unit weight, so we had avoided the dimensional weight issue. Uh, with a high price point, uh, and suddenly, you know, that ended up taking off. Uh, another thing is when that company suddenly started taking off, we started um, dealing with remote teams and everything else. And so we ended up having a, a video messaging company and everything else 
long before there was um, mm-hmm. Snap and Instagram, all these other things. Uh, and so we ended up creating this product and this platform off of our own use and, and that we were doing in business and turned that out there. That was the next company. And so we started creating all these companies left and right. And then that led to Gusher. And it was literally just suddenly from that, just from creating company and company and company and company and putting it out there. What was the the time period between that, the blueberry low carb company and to, uh, to starting Gusher? It, it took, it, listen, I, after when, when Osolo, the low carb company went out, I was basically out of commission for really two to almost five years. And by that, I don't mean that I wasn't doing business, that I couldn't get it, I couldn't get it going. Like nothing was clicking, absolutely nothing. Anything I touched didn't happen. Everything the previous 35, 40 years worked like a charm. Everything I touched ended up going and, and working phenomenally. But for that next three to five years, it was a horrendous experience. I call it purgatory. I was in the purgatory after that. Um, it was brutal. And so when the other thing happened with uh, Walmart and Target and all that, that was suddenly like, hey, this product is ready to go. That one thing where we had an idea for a product and put it out there before it was created. That's- I'm really intrigued by that five years in purgatory you just discussed, you just <laughs> mentioned. I got married. That was it. Oh, <laughs> well, I was going to ask, yeah, why do you think that was? What weren't you doing? What were you doing differently? And what weren't you doing, uh, I suppose, right or wrong? I, I just, yeah, I'm intrigued to see why, if you've got any thoughts about why that things didn't click. Was it something you, um, was it you? I, I think a lot of it could have been me. I mean, I, I would own that that if I thought it was just me, but I also think it's the following. I think it's kind of the path. Um, you can't just constantly be going up. It, it just doesn't operate like that. And I had gone up for a very long time. Uh, so I had gone up and then down a little bit and then up and then down a little bit. And that, and even though I was almost penniless when I started Oso Low, you know, I didn't have businesses for a long period that didn't make anything. I had businesses that were making stuff. Uh, it's just, I put a lot of it into this one software company that didn't. Uh, so I wasn't, you know, suddenly decimated or anything else when I created Osolo, but I was one step away from being evicted, uh, and not really having anything. So I didn't go through any period of my, my earlier years where there was like a down, where there was something that you had to really, you know, go through. And so that was my time, uh, to have that. And it was brutal. I mean, it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. It, it's it's hell being at the top one second uh, and then you're you're below a mountain the next that's not a nice place to be what was that linked to you know that depression and the and the impacts of those two failures do you think was, was it anything to do with your your kind of mindset and the, uh, maybe a knock to your confidence i don't think it was a knock to my confidence uh my, my confidence has really never swayed too much all right i mean yeah you have bad days you have good days but it's never like oh my god woe is me type of thing Mm. uh but it really made me question the world okay uh so almost in a way my world perspective of like how can that possibly happen how can you give so much to something and not have it work and i had to wrap my head around that uh and that's that took a long time because it wasn't like i wasn't confident but i was like well why the fuck should i pull a trigger again when i know that that is, is a, an extreme likelihood or possibility again. I don't wish to do that. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily fear. It was like more of malaise, you know? 
so it was i mean it sounds a bit like a knockback it sounds a sort of like yeah you said questioning the world i would sort of say a little bit about belief maybe yeah and, and maybe i define myself again with belief and i as i said you know right then is also right afterwards i got married i had you know our first child and everything else and stuff started to switch in terms of the value structure and so maybe that had maybe that had to be in order to result in that you know maybe that that type of failure or that type of depression or whatever it may be had to be present to give birth to what maybe i've become you're saying it was a necessary part of the journey in hindsight i'd say it's a necessary part of the journey you know we don't have a 2020 vision we don't have a crystal ball you know and in terms of of things that i've had to overcome i mean what have i had to overcome i've had to overcome business stuff you know i haven't had cancer uh you know i didn't have a, a child i knock on wood I didn't have, you know, yeah, my parents were not great and whatever, but I wasn't beaten to death. I didn't, you know, grow up at absolutely poor or absolutely rich, um, you know, so what do I have to complain about? So you said it's sort of, it was potentially necessary for the person you've become now. Absolutely. Say a little bit more about that. I mean, I'm mean, kind of intrigued by that sentence and I'm kind of also thinking about what would you have become if it didn't happen? I would have become a tyrant and stayed on the same road and just just gone with it. I mean that that's it. I would become a, I would have, there would have been no reason to change philosophically whatsoever. Uh, it worked, but it worked until it didn't. Uh, that that was the issue. You know myself how I've changed. As I said, with with people in general, I always give them the benefit of a doubt. Uh, with people in general, I I always realize that or hope that I realize that you know a lot of people have difficulty and I can't walk necessarily in their shoes. I don't try to put myself in their shoes because I couldn't even imagine it. Uh, but with business still with people, I still set the standard high. I don't want to kid you. I don't I don't lower that standard one iota uh, because of having empathy for people. Uh, with the team, if anything, I want them to have empathy for the other team members and people that are involved with the company because they're committing their life too. And I expect them uh, to keep the same high standard. So it's a nuanced, fine line. How'd you set those standards? How'd you set those expectations to your team? Uh, you set it by example. Uh, you never you never ask from your team what you're not willing to give and the recognition that they can't give as much as you can uh, because they're not you. But yet you set that standard. So if, if I'm working crazy long hours, do I expect them to? Yeah. But do I expect them to work what I do? No. Uh, you know, I expect them to take the business seriously. But yet, yeah, we, do we have fun? Yeah. We all know and hang out and do whatever with each other. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we're there to achieve a goal and we're all uh, in agreement as to what that goal is. We know what that goal is and what we're doing. So thinking back to uh, or looking at what you've achieved to date and everything that's come since that failure, how do you attribute your success now to what you learned from those potentially couple of failures or, you know, the 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 low carb failure um, we were talking about. Well, it's it's the entrepreneur's education, and there's no way anybody can get out of paying it. You're either going to pay it with a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of pain, a lot of something, uh, and that is not an easy place to be. It is quite literally a furnace, and that furnace literally goes ahead and burns the hell out of you, and turns you into ash, and you give up, or it turns into a better version of yourself that can then help you get that success that you need. Uh, you can't do it being the same person that you are 
without that entrepreneur's education and without going through that furnace. It is part of the process. The sooner that you understand that it's part of that process, the sooner you get the success. And that's a you know a, a fantastic metaphor. Is there any specific examples that you can uh, that you can think of? I know we we kind of talked about your the personal side, and obviously you kind of I would say softening a little bit. Maybe was there any sort of key business lessons that you've now? I know you mentioned about the book. Was there anything else that you've attributed to that failure that you now um, is a, a sort of line or things that you implement? Well, I, I mean, failure is part of a company's DNA at the onset. Whether or not they keep it as part of their DNA determines how innovative they are, all right? So you have to not just understand that that failure is part of it. You have to embrace it. You have to go ahead and make it your best friend. You have to marry that shit when it comes to failure because it really is. All right. It's not something to be avoided. It's not something that, oh, uh, you're not going to judge yourself as a bad person because you failed. I mean, we've all heard it before. I'm not going to say, you know, Edison with his 1500 times of, with the light bulb bullshit, but there is something to that. All right. In order to go ahead and achieve anything, whatever it is, I don't care whatever it is, whether you're lifting weight and trying to bench press 400 pounds or whether you're trying to go ahead and bring your stuff into 10,000 stores or whether you're trying to become the influencer. There's a portion of that time, a good portion of that time, that you're going to fail by trying something, by trying stuff to see if it works. And the only way you know if it works is by giving it time because nothing is instantaneous. So you have to fail. It's part of it. It's just the natural course of learning and achieving. So don't avoid. Do it. And I sort of, uh, I suppose, a. Uh, uh... A sort of follow-up question to that is because you know there might be people out there and think that um you're obviously made of thick skin but people might be out there thinking that actually they haven't they don't feel they've got the strength to get through setbacks and failures in business how do you sort of stay strong and keep a positive mindset when you are set um when you have sort of setbacks and and difficult moments so and i mean this honestly all right so there's a thing i do i've got it in my wallet somewhere this is just one that's on my desk okay but i had this thing coin says i don't know says never give up all right there are times when that is quite literally the only thing that i have between me and giving up, all right? I feel this, and I'm like, well, it was it was so important to me that I put this on a coin and had it laser etched or whatever the hell, uh, that it had to go ahead and mean something. So don't make a decision in the heat of the moment. Don't make a decision emotionally. Don't make a decision when you're tired. Don't make a decision when you're frustrated or you're anxiety-filled or anything else. Just get through the moment, get through the day, and just never give up. Now, I don't mean never give up and keep doing the same damn thing. Never give up means that, okay, you keep the focus on what your eye on the prize is, what exactly you're trying to achieve, and you do whatever the hell it takes to get there, whatever the hell it takes. It doesn't mean just doing the same stuff every day in and day out, although sometimes you have to. It's called practice. It's not called uh, whatever the hell Einstein said, that it's insanity, the same thing over and over. That's called practice to get a different result. 
but literally you have to go ahead and iterate and try and keep going at it, and eventually you'll get there. There's only one person that can stop the roller coaster of awesomeness, Jez, and that is who? The roller coaster of awesomeness of entrepreneurship. If you're on that roller coaster, who's the only person that can stop it? The person involved. Damn right. You. So just don't stop it. Just don't stop it. It's not your partner. It's not the government. It's not market circumstances. It's not a tornado. It's not a flood. It's not an earthquake. It's not the weather. It's not anything. Nothing can stop you. Just stop. The only person that can stop you is you. Don't stop. And that's, and that's sort of sound advice. I, I think, again, as a sort of follow-up to that, like, have you got any advice to you know, people out there that might be or business people out there that might have experienced a setback and a difficult moment uh, in their business and, you know, what what words would you give to them? Would it be those words or would it be something else? I'm going to say something. Uh, again, I'm going to curse because I like cursing, all right? So I, I'm going to tell them, and I have a much longer version of this, but remember who the fuck you are, all right? Remember who the fuck you are. As an entrepreneur, you are a fucking god. Uh, you create something out of nothing. Uh, you go ahead and make the impossible possible. You pull rabbits out of your ass. You are a fucking God. So go out there and be a God. Remember who the fuck you are. All right? And then I say their name with the word fuck and then their last name. So that's what I literally do. So you're Chris fucking Joyce. You're John fucking Smith. Remember who the hell you are. That seems to resonate and get them going again. <laughs> Nicely. I can see, I can already feel the power and the energy in that. But it's true. You are a God, really. You're creating. What are you doing today? You personally, Jez, are creating. You're creating. You're making something, uh, nothing out there and turning it into something. 100%. So just kind of wrapping up now, um, Chris, if you could go back in time and erase the failure from happening, so whether that's the software company or whether that's the low-carb company, from happening, would you t uh, would you do that? God, no. I don't know how the story's going to end. Why would I go ahead and leave a book in the middle? Hell no. And that, that makes an interesting book. I always say, uh, when I'm going through really difficult times, I go, this is going to be great in the movie. This may take months, a year and a half, but it's only going to be about a minute or five minutes in a movie. Love it. So we always end with a quick fire round. So this is short questions and short answers. So just going to get going if you're ready. Failure is overrated. What's your life's mission? To create the greatest startup engine ever. What's one piece of advice that you would want to give to others on your deathbed? Never give up. Sit. What's one habit that keeps you resilient? Uh, weightlifting every day at 5 a.m. Sounds intense. If you could be immortal, would you take it? 100%. Why? There can be only one. There can be only one. Do you know the reference or no? no. All right. There's the Highlander series where they would chop people's heads off uh, because they're, and there can be, they were immortal unless you chop their heads off because I don't know. I love that series. And yeah, I would definitely be immortal. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, I don't care if everybody else dies. Yes. Think of all the things you can create. Exactly. Think of compound interest and what that does after a certain amount of time. Right. Exactly. True, yeah. What's one surprising fact that not many people know about you? Uh, I'm a carnivore. Why is that surprising? 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know. Um, is there someone you could recommend that you think I should have on as a wait? Wait, wait you said surprising. I'm going to cut you off. All right, I can blow bubbles off my tongue, but I can't do it on command. So I can literally take a bubble and blow it off my tongue. No, oh, right, that is weird. <laughs> right, crazy. I can do that. That's surprising. So, who's a guest that you think I should have on and could recommend? Colin uh, Buckley, Happy Howl. He's a great guy. Very interesting story. Colin Buckley. Okay, great. Perfect. So, where can people connect with you and find you, Chris? Sure. Gusher.co. G-U-S-H-E-R.co. Reach out to me there. Happy to help in any way. Perfect. And I will put all your links in the show notes. So, Chris, um, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and really appreciate your time and sharing all of your experience and your honesty and insights. And, um, yeah, it's been really enjoyable. So, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Jez. You have a great night. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Fail. Really hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Please do subscribe to the show and leave us a review. It really does help us to grow and to reach more people. Do follow us on social media too. We're at Jeswood on Instagram and at Beyond the Fail on YouTube and also on Linktree. Thanks again and see you soon.